Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get podcasts. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, December 1st. You know, we haven't talked on this show yet about the zero COVID lockdowns in China and the unusually large number of people there joining protests against it, but also economically for the world, with so much of the global supply chain for so many things running through China. And this all comes as Xi Jinping is beginning an unprecedented third term as the most powerful individual leader, people are saying, since Mao Zedong in China. And with the death of former leader Zhang Zemin just this week being remembered by many in the country as leading China in a less controversial period of dramatic economic growth in the 1990s, even that now may play in to this story of both dissatisfaction and democracy in China. So back with us now, CNBC Beijing Bureau Chief Yunus Yun, who also anchors their show called Inside China, and herself living with China's COVID rules. Eunice, it's always good of you to give us some time from over there. Welcome back to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. Can you begin by describing how the zero COVID policy affects you compared to your time there before the pandemic? Uh, the uh, living here is just very uncertain. Um, in the way that it's changed my life personally, I just I never really know if I'm going to be able to get out of my apartment um, whether or not I'll be able to go to the doctor, um, will I be able to get on the subway or go to my, you know, a coffee shop? Will it be open? Will it not? <laughs> Which, you know, it's just that the rules are always changing. So you don't really know. And then, um, then there are just so many excesses with the zero COVID policy. So, um, most people that I know at this point in the past five or six months have been in some sort of quarantine. So that means sometimes in their home, or taken away to government isolation facilities. And uh, most people, actually, I personally don't know anyone who's gotten COVID here. And no one that I described, yeah, have, they, they, they have not gotten COVID and they don't know anybody who's gotten COVID. So it's just that the connection is really indirect where the government will um, hear that you are, you know, for example, like um, a, a friend of mine, her husband was in contact with somebody who got in contact with a, a co- seemed to be in, in contact with a COVID case, and she was in quarantine, and he was in quarantine, and they were put into government isolation facilities. And then after that, when they went home, and they were they actually were quarantined uh, separately. And then after that, when they got home, they uh, had to quarantine again. So you don't have to be sick with COVID to be um, taken away. And so that's the constant mm. fear that people have is that they're going to get a knock on the door. Some guy in a hazmat suit's going to be there. They're going to be hauled away to government center. And, um, and you don't really have a whole lot of recourse here. So, so it's quite, it's quite taxing um, just mentally because you're in this, this fear and then just going around. It's, it's really hard because, you know, at this point now, if I need a COVID test to get into a park, Actually, no, that's not right. The parks are all shut right now in Beijing. Wow. But before, I would have 
to get a COVID test to get get into a park. And the the current regulations are so scrambled that um, even though officially in Beijing, for example, um, we are supposed to have 48-hour negative COVID tests, some of the businesses and and um, locations that might be open. Um, say that you actually have to, you, you need a 24-hour negative COVID test. So it's just this constant, uh, constant testing, the constant scanning, you're always tracked, and then you could potentially get caught in a dragnet. And so that, that just starts to grind down business and it feels really risky to do anything, which is one of the reasons why um, there's just been so much of a pushback against these controls. Did you say the parks in Beijing are all closed, the outdoor parks? That's right. They're closed. Because? They closed them a couple of weeks ago because of uh, all the concerns about COVID spread, um, because the government is, has been seeing the, the number of infections rising. Right now, we're kind of hovering countrywide around 40,000 or so. But in Beijing, they've been jumping up. So the government had been indicating that this is a serious matter. And so they started to close all of the, the businesses and the parks and, and everything else to make sure that that the COVID wouldn't spread amongst the population. As I'm sure you know, Eunice, even the limited lockdowns we had in this country or that Europe has had have been met with big protests and political upheaval. I think one narrative about the recent elections in this country over the last couple of years is that um, the anti-lockdown factions turned out to be more powerful than what public health people would consider the pro-public health factions. But given that, why has Xi Jinping decided that this is worth it to this extreme and for this long? Well, President Xi, who's really intimately uh, associated now with this COVID policy, has uh, consistently said that this is a way to protect the public, that these lockdowns and quarantines and uh, um, shutdowns are good for the people, and that the uh, the priority of the Communist Party is to save lives. So that is the narrative that uh, we have been hearing here for the past three years, and one of the reasons why it's been so difficult for the government to make a switch. We're starting to see some indications, actually, just in the past uh, two days, where the um, he actually has um, a, like a, a lockdown czar. She's a uh, um, kind of considered this lockdown enforcer and a vice premier who has a bit of a nickname as uh, the lady of lockdowns. Mm. And she, she, wherever she goes, she, people fear that there's going to be more lockdowns. So for example, she went to Shanghai and suddenly we saw the brutal lockdown there. And, um, and, and she said it just this week that um, the pandemic fight is starting to enter a new phase. And um, and she started to talk. She's, she was talking about how Omicron isn't as um, as as dangerous and as harmful or causes as much disease as the previous iterations. And what was also interesting is that she notably did not mention uh, zero covid in a discussion to health experts. So uh, so this is being taken as a signal that the government is trying to move slightly away and trying to message to the public that um, that some of the uh, potential impact and harm that it could do to the body um, isn't going to be as severe. And in fact, that's what state media has been quoting a lot of researchers in the just, in, just today um, saying that long COVID uh, isn't as, as serious 
And that's just because the population here has been fed the same uh, message for the past three years that COVID is really dangerous, that um, the, the after effects are terrible, and that the only way we could get through this is with struggle and fight, and that Chinese people um, and that the country is much stronger than the than the West or other countries that in, um, Chinese, in Chinese, they say that um, lie flat, which is their way of saying slack off. And so, so mm-hmm. he's trying to, he's been trying to kind of rally the population to, to uh, stick with this strategy as opposed to living with the virus, which is what um, everywhere else of <laughs> the, the rest of the world is doing at this point. Yeah. So these easings of the rules that you were just describing just in the last couple of days, do you think those were a response to the big protests over the weekend and they're trying to walk a line now between between being responsive to public opinion but without looking like the government can be bullied into losing its authority? Yeah, absolutely. Um, because right now the, the authorities have not yet acknowledged the protests at all. So, um, And in fact, there was a meeting of high-level officials who were talking about uh, social st- security and stability. Um, and they um, didn't address the, the protests directly, but said that it was um, it was imperative that China crack down on what they described as hostile forces or illegal activities. And so that was seen as a as a way that um, China was trying to send a signal that they didn't want more protests without actually mentioning it. And then on the, the health side, um, there has been some easing where um, it's mainly on the margins, I would say. It's, um, for example, in Beijing, um, they said that it's now illegal for a building to put a barricade in front of the the entrance to a residential compound. However, the compound, the buildings within that compound can be locked down and people can be locked in their homes. So Mm -hmm. it's, you know, some of these things shouldn't have been done anyway, uh, but they um, that what they're doing is they're trying to get rid of. Um, some of the more excessive curves, they've described these as as layers, and they say that they're optimizing zero COVID, but they also say they're not straying from zero COVID because they don't want to admit that, you know, they don't want any perception that, that the path that China's been on was in any way a mistake. So they're saying instead that they're optimizing the zero COVID policy as a, a face-saving way to try to make some of these changes at this point. And, and they've also been doing something quite typical of the, the leadership here, and that is blaming the local officials. So they're saying it's the local officials that have been the ones who haven't been proper in the implementation of zero COVID. So, huh. uh, you know, that, yeah, so instead of taking the responsibility on the upper level, um, they're saying that it's, it's the problem with these lower level officials. That must make the mayors all over China furious, but they probably don't feel like they can say anything about it, right? Exactly, exactly. I think it makes them crazy, though, (laughs) because they have to stick with the priority of trying to keep the caseload at zero. But they also now have to be perceived as optimizing and easing and opening up. And that's why you're seeing this conflict constantly um, in terms of the rollout and, and why we don't really know how things are going to play out. Of course, CNBC is a business channel. So let me ask you, Eunice, I mean, the Chinese economy has been the country's pride and joy for so many years, as the U.S. and elsewhere have had all these mixed fortunes in recent decades. We remember Donald Trump didn't want a COVID lockdown because it would soil what he considered his biggest political asset during the re-election season, economic growth. So how this is, again, a political question. 
how does the Chinese government come to this position on the trade-off, that the economic pain is worth the public health gain? Right. And um, that has been um, a debate that's been going on in China for quite some time. Um, obviously, the, the private sector has been um, in a lot of pain, uh, not only because of, of regulations, especially in the tech sector, but also because um, they, they have been feeling, really feeling, the economic impact. Um, in some of my discussions with with private enterprise, um, you know, they'll talk about how uh, you know, a quarter of their staff is in lockdown or in quarantine. You know, they can't uh, have meetings, or they even I've, I've known um, certain uh, company executives that would arrange their own transportation and close loop. They describe as, or you know, basically uh, an end to end. Um, type of transport system so that they could have some meetings in certain situations. So, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's, it's affecting all of these decisions um, for all these business people. And it's even on a, a micro level where, um, for example, I have a woman who comes to my house, uh, cleans, cleans up for, uh, helps me with vacuuming and things like that for mm -hmm. four hours on the weekend. And um, she's, she was in lockdown for 15 days. Um, because uh, there was a couple cases in um, her compound, and so all the buildings were shut. And you know she can't earn money during that time. And there are a lot of people in the service sector who who can't earn money when they're in lockdown. And um, and that's and it, it's actually and you I mean you mentioned the, the the big economic growth that China has had. I mean I've been here for quite quite a, a number of years at this point. And even when you would hear about an economic slowdown in China. Uh, people would ask me, oh, what is it like in Beijing? And you it, you couldn't really see it. I mean, you would know that there was a slowdown, but it wasn't really visible. But that's the difference with this particular economic slowdown. You do see um, you do see a lot of closed shops, a lot of desperate people, businesses where people will um, not be able to sell their and restaurants, not be able to sell their meals or their goods, and they'll come outside and then they'll have it all laid out on the street. Um, the, um, there, there's, I've, I've seen a lot of home, like more and more homeless people, which is almost unheard of in downtown Beijing. And then there's just a lot of talk about joblessness and fear of losing jobs. The official data, um, for youth unemployment is somewhere around, has been around 20% or so, which is incredibly high. Mm, yeah. And, um, and because it's official data, people are thinking, oh, well, actually the real number must be higher. So, uh, and it's just that, that, um, you always before, even in in slower times, you would see more cars on the streets. You would see more shops, vibrant. But but that's just not the case case these days. Everything it's just, it's just the economy is is very much under strain. So that's why it's it's been hard because you see that on the one hand, Xi Jinping has been pushing ahead with the zero COVID policy, but then there are people who are more more reform minded or more economically minded in the government who have been warning and are concerned, uh, such as the premier, Li Keqiang, who was, um, has been out there um, and, and until recently, um, um, really warning about the impact on the economy. And then just in the past several couple of weeks or so, there have been more measures to try to support the real estate sector because the real estate sector has been in dire straits. And um, even though there's support to the, the liquidity of these developers, uh, the, one of the, the big issues is that people don't want to buy houses at this point. They see the real estate sector falling. They don't 
want to part with their cash. Um, as you probably know, like the, the Ch- Chinese tend to save more. There tend to be more savers than spenders. So, so that the natural inclination is I'm just going to save because I don't know what's going to happen in the future. And because yeah. of zero COVID, it's just exacerbated that whole situation. So there, you know that there are parts of the government that are worried about the economy, but because the, the leadership has already stuck with zero COVID and Xi Jinping is, is tied himself to zero COVID, um, the, the, it's, it's a really difficult way to, it's, it's difficult to see what the exit ramp is going to be. But it means that the leadership must have been making the calculation for almost three years now that all of that that you were just describing is better than experiencing what, say, the United States is experiencing, hundreds of thousands of COVID deaths a year, you know, times four, because China has four times as many people as the United States. Yeah, I think that they maybe didn't prepare for the idea that the lockdowns and the quarantines weren't going to work. I mean, one of the criticisms that uh, and grumbling that we hear here is that the population hasn't been properly vaccinated. I mean, the official numbers are, are quite high, that it's about like 90% or so of the population is, is vaccinated. But the vaccinations are f- with the, the Chinese vaccines. And it seems as though the leadership doesn't have a whole lot of confidence in their own vaccines, though they officially tout mm. them and say that they're amazing, but they, but, but it just by their action, it doesn't seem as though mm. they're so confident in their own vaccines. And at the same time, they don't import any foreign vaccines, so it's it's impossible for us to be able to get Pfizer or Moderna or anything. I mean, when I have conversations with my friends in the U.S., people tell me that you could go to a CVS or something and just get a, a get a jab like anywhere. And yeah. it just I can't even imagine what that's like because it's just it's just not available here at all. And the only time when it's there was some discussion about bringing in foreign vaccines was when the German chancellor came here. And then um, there was some discussion that they might import some for foreigners who live in China. But from my, my understanding, those discussions haven't really gone anywhere at this point, And it might only be for for Germans now as opposed to to mm. foreigners and, and maybe Next year or later, we don't, we don't know. Les in Bay Ridge, you're on WNYC with Eunice Yoon, CNBC's Beijing bureau chief. Hi, Les. Hi, how you doing? My wife is Chinese. I've been over to Zhengzhou a couple of times, and we have a, her mother's over there, and uh, they had a quarantine. We have a relative uh, staying with us, very sick, very old, and at some point there was no food left, and you're not allowed to leave the building to get food. I mean, give me a break. You know, so he he has a fit with these guys because it's a front gate situation. It's, it's just like in Flushing where they have the, the, the buildings and they have a front gate so they can keep you in or keep you out so they can control you. And he goes over and he, he says, listen, you don't let me out. I'm turning on the gas. I'm starting to fire. I'm blowing up the building. You know, she's going to die. So they said, okay, um, sneak out the back. You don't tell anybody. And uh, he goes out and he runs out and gets the food. And, you know, somebody else will see that. So there's a the secondhand system going on there, you know, to, to, to survive. And the other point is my wife would like to go over. I'd like to go over. And it seems nearly impossible that we'll ever get over there because how do you go over if you're going to get quarantined up front when you get off the plane? Maybe the person you want to see is in quarantine. You don't know yet. It might happen in the interim. And then if you were able to finally get there and get out, 
you probably have to be quarantined again before you left the country. Yeah. So a two week stint might be like six weeks. <laughs> Les, thank thank you. Thank you for, for sharing all that. Eunice, does your reporting back up what he said, uh, including about people running out of food and not allowed to go out and get more food? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Les's story is one of, I mean, and I'm grateful that there wasn't a serious tragedy tragedy and that he was able to, his family was able to get get some food in the end but but there it's just there's so many stories of these individual tragedies because of the controls and i think that that was um really what triggered the protests so you know we saw that there that this pressure has been building up uh, because people have been dealing with these lockdowns for the past 3 years but then uh, what tipped off that, the protests, I think, was more not about an individual lockdown, but be the perceived injustice of the whole system. The fact that people could get fall into these tragic situations because the zero COVID system, um, from their perspective, is failing. So the one incident that sparked it all was a protest, it was a, um, a, a, a building fire in the um, uh, far western city of Udumti, which is in a, a Muslim region called Xinjiang, and 10 people died there. And so the, the broader perception was that the rescue efforts for those people were hampered by COVID controls. The authorities deny that, but actually it only just made people angrier. And, and so what's interesting, I think, is that people, what, what, what really bothers people is not only the exhaustion of the controls, but the abuses, the severity of it. And, um, and again, because they it's an authoritarian system. There's little recourse and um, very similar stories to people starving in their homes, um, not able to go to the hospital. Um, tragic stories of like a, a pregnant woman who lost her baby because like she didn't have a COVID test. So she wasn't allowed to go in. Uh, sick children being separated from their parents in Shanghai and then thrown into wards. And so all of these stories um, just create this that you know, just show how uh, really frustrate people because they believe that this is an injustice and and a very unfair system. Here's a question: <clears throat> a question about the protests coming in from Frank in Huntington. Frank, you're on WNYC. Hi. My question is: is uh, is it true that the the CCP brought in the military to disperse the peaceful protesters? And uh, I wanted to back that question up with. Um, is it, does it have uh, an eerie feeling of a Tenement Square situation? Thank you, Frank. Um, yeah. Well, so in terms of the, the level of the, the, the security, um, I, I don't know um, if it was uh, military-related or not. But uh, for sure, police were and, and security uh, did uh, break up those, um, a, a lot of the protests and continue to try to hunt down some of the protesters now. I was just in contact with one protester in Beijing, and they said that the uh, tracking has gotten to the point where they were in a car, in a taxi, in the street, and um, the police stopped the car and then um, had them checked the phone. And what we're hearing in Shanghai, and um, and, and I know in Beijing is happening is that they, they actually open your, your phone and then they're looking at your foreign apps like Telegram, for example, which is an encrypted app in a way that a lot of protesters and, and, um, and activists communicate. And so they're, they're trying to find who the organizers are in order to, to silence the, um, the rest of the protesters. 
Um, in terms of the comparisons to Tiananmen, um, for sure there is a, a lot of people drawing comparisons, not only because students have been taking part, um, but also because it has been the most open show of resistance to the Communist Party since the crackdown in 1989. And, and um, Brian, you had mentioned President, uh, former President Jiang Zemin. Uh, those comparisons were amplified by his death. So, um, so Jiang Zemin... Um, ran the country in the 90s and, and the early 2000s. Um, he died now at age of 96. And um, he was he was considered a, a political conservative, but at the same time, he's kind of being seen as a figure from a happier time. And um, what's what people are, are seeing now is that during the Tiananmen demonstrations in 1989, um, what triggered it were memorials for the death of another major figure in Chinese politics, a man named Hu Yaobang, who was a favorite among Chinese reformers. And now we have Jiang Zemin, whose funeral is next Tuesday. And people are wondering if there are going to be vigils and memorials and whether or not that's going to eventually lead to more protests. Will they feed into these protests? And um, we, can, we already have indications that the leadership is worried about it because they've mm. been since yesterday, they've been censoring any discussion about in memorials of, of uh, just online of uh, of Jiang Zemin. That's fascinating, and I guess uh, the question that some people in this country are asking is: uh, New York Times framed it the other day as, "Is this a movement, or is this just a moment in China?" I guess uh, I won't ask you to predict, and and time will tell. But let me ask you one Jiang Zemin question before you go. You know, there's so mm-hmm. much skepticism, and again, this relates back to you working for Business Channel. There's so much skepticism now about President Clinton in this country uh, in the 90s opening the economy here to more imports from China, more globalization, in the hopes that, you know, the rising tide of free trade would lift all boats. People have really soured on that here. A lot of that was Clinton and Jiang Zemin, right? So how about in China? I think that at this stage, people would would uh, love to go back to the idea of a more open China and uh, being plugged into the the world, the rest of the world. Uh, so, so Jiang Zemin, as as you, he's he he's. It, it, I, I think it's it's interesting because he's not he's not beloved by um, Chinese reformers like Hu Yaobang was, but he is like he was he was seen as quite um, an interesting guy. That he could joke in um, in English, he would um, break out into kind of cheesy songs. You know, he was he had met with um, um, President Clinton, and um, you know, under his watch, a lot had happened. He you know, China joined the WTO. Uh, Hong Kong was returned from the UK to China. A lot of American companies came to China, um, and it was just in this period of tremendous economic reform. And so, when people are looking at Jiang Zemin at this stage, they're thinking about that time, the sort of kind of time when there was a lot of hope. You know, the China was much poorer, but it was much more hopeful. So, so you know, now we're in a situation where people don't see the economy um, growing quickly. They don't see um, a whole lot of, of, of hope for their livelihoods getting better. Um, and they see a China that's getting closed off 
from the rest of the world. So it couldn't be any more different, which is why that's one of the reasons why people are, are wondering if these protests um, just went underground and if they're going to surge again. But I think one of the big uh, factors is going to be how well the, um, the, the leadership on the health side is able to address the um, anger over the COVID restrictions. If, they're, if, if the, the students and the, the protesters feel like it's enough, uh, because of the, the the heavy price they would have to pay um, if they continue to protest, maybe they're going to say, "Okay, this is this is good enough." But what was interesting in these um, these protests this time was that it wasn't it was mainly about the COVID controls, but there were um, some people who even were were calling for the resignation of President Xi Jinping. Others were calling for freedoms like freedom of speech, freedom of um, freedom of um, information. Um, freedom of the press. Um, I, I was, I, I mean, even freedom of um, p- to play video games. And I know that sounds, it sounds kind of ridiculous, but I think it, sh- it, sh- it, uh, it shows you just how intrusive the government has become in, um, has come in, into people's lives. And, um, and I think the fear among the, the leadership would be that the, um, that these, the, the public anger towards the COVID controls could morph into um, anger directed at the Communist Party and um, and the overarching um, regime that uh, the that the people here have to live with. Our guest has been CNBC Beijing bureau chief Eunice Yoon, who also anchors their show called Inside China. Thanks for staying up till almost one in the morning with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Anytime. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.